Hello and welcome again to the Vartha podcast. We're in the month of July and there's a lot happened in India over the last few weeks and we have a lot of items across a wide range of categories to cover today. Thank you for joining us once again and thank you to everybody who's been leaving us feedback on our podcast over the last few weeks. I have the usual gang here with me today. Uh I'm Aftab your host. I've got Milind, Pavan and Gaurang around the table. This was a week where uh, plenty of political events have happened in Delhi. Um the most notable one being the expansion of the union cabinet which a lot of people are now calling the union cupboard because uh, Mr Modi started off with this whole uh, campaign pledge of maximum governance and minimum government the government has actually added new ministers and they are very close to the constitutional limit of the maximum number of ministers which is i think close to about 81 or 82 and they're almost there of course a lot of it was done keeping an eye on the upcoming elections uh, we saw a lot of obc leaders being drafted into the cabinet up goes to the polls next year and the bjp really wants to do well and governments have done this previously and there's no harm in having a wider representation in the cabinet of various political constituencies across the country what was interesting to see was uh, the 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 political jostling that was happening in the background and who gains and who loses and i know the the lutians media loves to do uh, this kind of an analysis perhaps the biggest loser of this uh, cabinet expansion was union hrd ex union hrd minister smriti irani and we've spoken about her a couple of times previously on on this podcast as well and you know at a larger level a very abrasive and confrontational tenure of uh, mrs irani has now come to an end at at the hrd ministry was a tenure that saw her getting into spats with iim chiefs uh, the whole rohit vimula and the jnu controversy happened ended up with a very fiery and emotional speech delivered by her in parliament which i think at that point of time the bjp felt was politically very valuable but i read some articles this week that said that that was kind of the beginning of the end for her and she was being seen more as a liability than than an asset so she goes to the textile ministry much much low profile uh, hopefully she'll stay out of twitter spats now and uh, and and not get the kind of publicity onto her that the government is probably seeking to avoid and you could see you know the sometimes a change of personnel itself gives you a view of the motivations behind the change and prakash javadekar is a very low profile soft spoken person he, he's been a bjp spokesperson for a very long period of time but I don't remember even once him getting into a fight on television with anybody um you know he he's managed to hold his patience even in Arnab's court um of the nation so um so a genial personality is now gone into the HRD ministry and I think that tells you the reasons behind it I think the larger point also was that Mr Modi is very much in control um and Amit Shah is basically running the party and trying to keep the party and the government harmonized uh there was an interesting piece that i read which which mentioned that when you looked at the seating arrangements for the ceremony itself amit shah was sitting with mr modi and where the ministers sit which has not usually been the case in 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 the previous government of the upa sonia gandhi generally used to sit uh, separately from where the ministers were sitting so kind of differentiation between the party and the government that's not the case here with the bjp so the party and the government are trying to work in a very unified manner and uh, amit shah is trying to keep uh, keep the party in line some reports suggested mr arun jaitley was was also a little bit of a loser he's lost out one of his portfolios uh, the inb ministry so he's now basically left the finance 
uh, Jayant Sinha was Minister of Finance under him and also a fairly high-profile figure um, has, has kind of been shifted out. I think, again, the Prime Minister felt he spoke out of turn on a couple of issues. So interesting changes overall, uh, but, uh, but the larger narrative being Mr. Modi is politically firmly in control. I think he's the one who wants to drive the agenda of this government. And also the BJP is looking ahead towards the elections and trying to get its its calibrations in order uh, to appeal to different sections of of the people and of course the government is at a at a two and a half or slightly more it's approaching its midpoint almost to say and and this is the time when when faces need to be changed in areas where mr modi probably feels the performance has not been up to a mark so it'll be interesting to see how the new ministers do and how how some of the uh, major policy items move forward um, but uh, but this was a big news coming out of uh, New Delhi this week. It was fairly expected, mostly unexpected lines, but then a couple of surprises. I think uh, Irani's shift being probably the big one. All right. Um, so that's politics. Let's let's talk a little bit about national security. And India has been um, heavily involved in, I would call it an emotional roller coaster ride for the last two months or so relating to the nuclear suppliers group. It's almost like, that fancy exclusive club that you want to get into, but somehow just can't find a way either through the front door or the back door. And Millen's got a bunch of stuff that he's dug up on NSG and, and the effort that India has been putting in ever since the Prime Minister went to the US. So I'm going to hand it over to Millen. Thanks, Afsab. Uh, I would say this is not so much of a um, detailed uh, analysis of India's efforts but more of a commentary on, on the results and, uh, and what I think India should be uh, focusing its uh, efforts uh, with regards to international diplomacy on. Uh, so foreign di- diplomacy is rarely based on compassion and fairness, right? It's, uh, I'm sure diplomats around the world have their own version of Jiski Lati Uski Bhais, uh, which is a famous uh, Hindi proverb loosely translates as he who wields the club owns the cattle. So it was a painful reminder to everyone that India does not yet wield a big enough club to get into some of the exclusive clubs of influential nations. Um, for, our, for our listeners who have not been following this issue, the NSG is a group of 48 nations that uh, trade in nuclear technology. And one of the guiding principles of the NSG is that the supplier of nuclear technology would commit to trade only after ascertaining that the trade will not lead to proliferation or unauthorized leaks of this uh, sensitive technology. Uh, so most major powers, including the US, the UK, France, and Japan, um, had come out in support of India, agreeing that India's inclusion will further strengthen the non-proliferation agenda of the NSG. Um, the US in particular went out of its way to, to bat for India. Um, France championed India's cause. Uh, Switzerland, uh, a, a notoriously... Uh, neutral state that that has very stringent um, uh, standards, if you will, uh, when it comes to um, international uh, issues, uh, was also in favor of India being inducted into the group. But you know, none of this uh, eventually mattered. You know, China uh, was the biggest uh, country that was firmly uh, opposed to India's induction. So everybody was quick to, quick to blame China as the only nation that blocked the entry. The, the vote needs to be unanimous uh, uh, for the induction of a new member. But then 
you know, it's interesting to see Brazil, Austria, New Zealand, Ireland, and Turkey also oppose India's induction. So there are a total of six countries out of the 48 that oppose India's in- entry. So now, now some may say that if China had put its weight behind the bid, uh, these smaller players may have fallen in line, could have, you know, per- could have been persuaded either by the U.S. or China. I think all of this speculation is pointless. In my opinion, India simply needs to increase its influence through trade alliances and militarily uh, strengthening uh, itself, you know, building military alliances as well, and overhauling the diplomacy machine from the ground up. Even today, India has a pretty weak diplomatic presence. The uh, the number of India's diplomatic core uh, is pretty small compared to some of the larger uh, nations. And I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Nobody is going to give India's seat uh, at the big boys' table out of pity or, a, or, a, or an overwhelming feeling of fairness. That's not how diplomacy works. Nations advance their interests using all the tools they have at their disposal, including you know the time-tested strategies um, from the school playground. So, so that's how diplomacy works. Whoever has leverage is going to come out victorious or is going to be able to capture the most value in, uh, uh, in negotiations. So, and then to wrap it up, I, I wonder if the diplomatic effort that was spent on this initi- initiative was worth the potential upside. As a regular citizen, I would much rather prefer that the government work on forging favorable trade deals uh, that could benefit the country economically than work on getting a membership to some snooty old boys club. <laughs> the media has extensively covered this topic, but nowhere have I found a, a compelling, persuasive reason as to why India should uh, work hard to get entry to the NSG simply to influence the trade agenda of the group. I don't think that's an upside that's big enough to expend so much diplomatic efforts uh, on part of even the prime minister of the state. That's an interesting point uh, because I think uh, the prime minister obviously copped a fair amount of political criticism as well that, you know, this was like uh, a a major blow to India's pride that he was making a lot of noise about getting into NSG and then, you know, it did not come about. I, I kind of want to leave that aside. What was the major roadblock per se? Was it just the fact that India is not a signatory to the NPT? Uh, and then I think India's political reasons behind not signing the NPT is that Pakistan hasn't signed it as well, right? And that you don't want to be doing something by yourself in the nuclear field when Pakistan's not doing it. Was there anything else beyond that part, you know, larger, greater game, China trying to cut us to size, something like that? I think I think it was definite. China had a big role to play, although we we cannot blame China. You know, it's they have the leverage at this point and they are going to use it to their advantage. Sure. We can we cannot just complain about China and bicker about China. That that is simply not how diplomacy works. They have uh, you know, all the the power uh, to uh, they are incumbents in the NSG. They can veto India's entry, and they're obviously going to use um, you know all of that to their advantage. What India needs to focus on is is countering that with with smart uh, maneuvering. So I think that was the biggest reason um, that India was not uh, granted entry. China's um, uh, unfavorable uh, response and and i think china played an extremely smart uh, game by uh, springing pakistan into the mix you know pakistan never really um, 
had NSG membership on its um, agenda. But then what China did was, um, you know, by taking China, Pakistan's name in the same breath, uh, people are almost forced to, uh, you know, consider both the countries simultaneously. And, you know, you can almost be certain Pakistan's entry to the NSG would not be a simple matter. Pakistan has been a gross violator of, of um, the uh, non-proliferation uh, regime. Uh, their technology has found its way to Iran, to North Korea. Uh, it's it's a murky um, environment um, in, in Pakistan right now. So it would be very hard to, to induct Pakistan. And by taking Pakistan's name in the same breath as India, uh, China has you know, smartly um, sort of tied our fate to, to Pakistan's. And, and it's a very hard association to shake off, even though India has a stellar um, nuclear record. Yeah, yeah. No, that, 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 that's, a good, that's a good point. And I think, um, I, I think the government's hopeful that in the next round of the meetings, this might lead to positive developments, but, I, but uh, it remains to be seen whether the outcomes are, are uh, going to land in India's favor. Right, let's move on from the story. Um, one institution that was in the news the last month quite a fair bit was the RBI, the Reserve Bank of India. Its uh, prominent governor, Raghuram Rajan, is no longer seeking a second term. After a lot of speculation of will he, won't he, whether the government will give him a term or not, an extension or not, Rajan disclosed that he himself has now decided that he doesn't want to seek a second term. He's going back to academia in the U.S., a lot of it was prompted by public criticism that he received fair amount from the new BJP MP in the Rajya Sabha, Mr. Subramanian Swami, but also from a lot of other quarters. And it was felt that Rajan's reluctance to raise interest rates um, or lower interest rates um, was was behind why the re- was behind the government not necessarily being fully in his in his corner and not coming out in his support. Raghuram Rajan is the first RBI governor in the post. 1991 reforms era of India, not to get uh, an extension to his original governorship term of the RBI. So let's look. Let's take a closer look at at the Rajan years at the RBI and what does this mean for the Indian economy. We 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 dug up a certain amount of data and we've done some analysis and Pavan will walk us through that. But then we also pulled out uh, an interesting chart on Rajan's tenure and and Gaurang will walk through walk through the chart. So I'm going to hand it over to Pavan first to talk about Rajan's time in the RBI. Thanks, Safran. Yeah, so as for the why and how of him not going for the second term, I think we can only speculate about the politics at play with uh, Subramanian Swami and uh, BJP at the center of it all. Uh, there might be other factors too. I'm not going to go into much detail of that side of the story either. But uh, until a few months ago, most people had hoped and expected that Mr. Rajan would continue on to a second term. So it has left a lot of people wondering what is the impact of his exit. Let's look at some of uh, Mr. Rajan's goals when he started out in the year 2013. He has revealed some of these in some interviews that he conducted back then. The most important in his mind was that of reducing inflation. When he took over, the inflation was at uh, over 10%. The currency was at its weakest ever and current account deficit was over 3% of the previous year, implying that supply side of the economy failed to meet the demand. In short, the economy was bad. Rajan targeted an inflation of uh, 6% for January 2016, uh, which he was criticized for uh, in many quarters. And the inflation has been around for 6% uh, the past two years now. 
which is quite a bit which goes to say a lot he has he also targeted this increasing the savings rate and tightening monetary policy this was pretty much uh, against the consensus of the monetary policy members uh, panel members to to basically hold or drop rates and loosen monetary policy well apparently his approach has paid off the inflation has reduced since the rupee recovered a, a little bit and growth rate has basically rebound almost a couple percentage points uh, how did he do this like he, he took a series of steps which which he has received quite a bit of acclaim for he achieved this through one was hiking interest rates uh, which he did within months of taking charge and this was against what a lot of people had ex- actually expected adoption of the cpi or the consumer uh, price index as the monetary benchmark for uh, tracking inflation strengthening the f- forex reserves he did this by uh, quoting nris and uh, attracting investment with some swap deals that uh, that were offered to banks as you would imagine all of these combined had increased the confidence of investors in the indian economy and sensex basically shot up 35% in 2014 it's it's quite awesome to look at the direct correlation of uh, uh, those steps now uh, some of rajan's other achievements include setting up the bharat bill payment system he set up a loan database that banks can look at before making loans to large corporate houses and uh, he basically forced banks to uh, Uh, accurately account and disclose their non-performing assets and uh, remember all the entire vijay malya incidents we spoke a little bit about that to to sum it up uh, i've gathered that mr rajan's term with the rbi was quite positive for india's economy he leaves behind very good monetary policy and framework for the future governor but uh, the indian economy still isn't out of the woods Uh, there are lingering fears of being able to meet growth targets uh, uh, about the high volatility bad assets of state run and private banks and then of course there was uh, about the questions about dealing with the effects of uh, britain's exit from the european union brexit <laughs> uh, whether his exit causes a large impact is a question that is hard to answer of course from an economic perspective uh, i think it would largely depend on whether his successor is able to utilize rajan's past work well and build on top of his policies if someone were to just come and reverse all the work that he did I- i'm not sure how good that would be uh, now as far as monetary policy goes it requires constant adjustment and we'll certainly miss having one of the top economists of the world uh, leading our central bank and from the investors perspective i was expecting the stock markets to react very negatively upon the announcement of it ex- of his exit but it did not seem that the investors as were as worried about it the market reacted mildly right after his announcement uh, i mean the the first trading day after his announcement on june 20th of course it is yet to be seen what exactly will happen on its uh, actual departure Yeah, that's that's kind of what i've uh, read about and gathered any anything to add yeah i think uh, the thing with central bank governors and chairmen both in the us in the europe and, and in india is one of the qualities that they must possess is they should have their timing right 
And I thought Rajan remained uh, ever the gentleman right till the end and he got his timing spot on because he announced that he was not going to take a second term over a weekend. I think he announced it either on f- late on Friday or on Saturday when the markets were closed. And so had he had he done it in the middle of the week on an active trading day, I'm sure the Sensex would have felt a jolt and it would have led to some volatility and, and continued impact on the markets. But I think he allowed, he gave the time for the news to sink in and by the time the markets opened on Monday, you know, they had enough time to digest the fact and then kind of not lead to a lot of volatility in the financial markets as, as such. So, you know, right till the end, he kind of got his timing completely right. Right. And so what we've also done uh, while we were analyzing Mr. Rajan's time at the, the RBI was we did a chart of the week, uh, which again, to remind our listeners, is we, we do a data visualization every week when you receive our digest. And you can see this on our website, vata.in. And we look at uh, a certain topic every week and we try to visualize it from a data perspective and give give more insights around it. So Gorang looked at certain metrics related to RBI and during Mr. Rajan's tenure and, and did a very interesting chart of the week around that. So Gaurang, I'm going to let you talk about that now. Sure. Thanks, Aftab. So we actually do, did two charts in a series. So one was regarding repo rates and reverse repo rates. And then the second was about the Forex and gold reserves of RBI. And so before dying, diving into the chart, let me just clarify some of the things that are like, you know, what the role of RBI is and what is actually the monetary policy. So again, according to our constitution, the role of RBI is to regulate the issue of bank notes and keeping off reserves with a view to securing monetary stability in India and generally to operate the currency and credit system of the country to its advantage. Uh, The RBI affairs are governed by central board of directors appointed by the government of India. And again, you can read about all of these on the RBI website. We have links to that in our podcast description. Now, um, all the countries in the world generally have a central bank and RBI is ours. All central banks interact with the International Monetary Fund, IMF, to ensure international monetary system. And again, to reiterate, we have links to IMF if you want to know more about it. So let's come back to RBI though and what does it actually do? So firstly, it issues bank notes or rupee notes. Again, interestingly, however, I think it's in line with the checks and balances of our constitution. The government of India designs and mints coins. But RBI works with the government on issuing of notes and it also acts as a banker to the government. It maintains and operates the deposit accounts of the government and also makes payments on on its behalf. Uh, It is the RBI that decides which notes and how many need to be minted and printed. Now, uh, banks are also required, or, or commercial banks are required to hold cash reserves with the RBI as regulated by the RBI itself. So you can see there's a lot of interaction going on between the RBI and our commercial banks. And there's a lot of, uh, there's a need for policy on how much reserve needs to be kept and what the interest rate should be, etc. One of the main reasons the RBI requires the banks to hold cash reserves with itself is so that, you know, it's more of an emergency day fund or if there's a financial difficulty for the bank itself. The other key function of the RBI is to maintain foreign currency assets. So any loan the government takes from the foreign, from foreign banks or any foreign direct investment in India uh, or in the Indian government or state government projects, or if there's foreign institutional investment, investors like you know foreign mutual funds or hedge fund companies that they invest in India, all that kind of contributes to the foreign uh, currency assets. And the policy using which the RBI regulates all this is called the monetary policy. 
so for example the rbi can control the interest rate that the banks provide to the general public by controlling the interest rate that it provides to the banks which is called the repo rate or the interest rate at which loan uh, uh, at which it loans from the banks which is called a reverse repo rate or there's the minimum amount of percentage of money from all customers that a bank uh, from a bank that need to be kept with the rbi which is called the cash reserve ratio or in simple terms cash reserve ratio is basically a small fraction of the amount of money we have in the bank but it is kept with rbi so in a broad sense all these factors like repo rate reverse repo rate cash repo, uh, reverse ratio or are all these rates and uh, measures that the rbi can control to regulate the flow of money in the system and in turn check inflation so now let's look look at the at the first chart which we did was on the ratios uh, since uh, rbi since rajan's regime has continued the increase in repo rate uh, until the inflation levels fell in 2014 and again as pavan mentioned there was criticism against rajan for not bringing down repo rate despite lower reported inflation through the entire year of 2014 since higher repo rate also means less money in the system also bringing repo rate too low may not be as good for the economy as well uh but you know his decision may be uh, attributed to creating kind of a stability uh, stability the, in the country uh, moreover you can see rbi did decrease the statutory liquidity ratio in mid 2014 uh, as well as the repo rate gradually in 2015 now let's turn our attention to the second chart which we did in the series and this was based on the monetary policies like foreign uh, uh, currency assets and gold reserves again as pavan mentioned uh, rbi has steadily increased its foreign currency assets while uh, the gold reserves they haven't uh, uh, is not their hasn't been their primary attention it 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 has increased but uh, you know not at the same level as for, as much as foreign foreign currency assets and now gold uh, reserves generally are a good balance or a hedge against you know foreign currency assets so if the rupee kind of falls it's kind of good to uh, have gold uh, reserves although gold reserves have increased slightly you know gold doesn't seem to be or didn't seem to be rajan's primary monetary policy but it's noteworthy that uh, rbi had to sell its foreign currency assets in early 2016 towards the fall of the rupee also one of the key observations from the chart is uh, the value of sdrs that is the special drawing rights which is basically the uh, money that rbi holds with the imf dropped considerably during that particular period and the period basically is when you know um, the rupee was really really high about 60 67 to a dollar <clears throat> now although the reserves fell by a billion dollars rbi has since been able to recover most of the loss by now in terms of uh, the foreign currency assets however the the value of sdrs is still a bit low and the this valuation is kind of done by the uh, imf and you can read more about that on their website now all these are some of the macroeconomic factors that the rbi has at its disposal to control inflation currency value but cannot solely attributed to be the deciding factors however the rbi has to walk the fine line to keep these key indicators in balance so that's pretty much it right and and this is i mean fairly fairly informative in terms of the tools that that are being used and you know kind of how i think the interesting part to me that jumps out is how mr rajan was trying to basically press all the levers that he could because he came in and 
in almost a semi-crisis-like situation when the rupee was falling drastically, inflation was really high, and and as a central bank governor, you know, one of your mandates is to to choose to lower inflation and boost employment, and I think he kind of stuck to that till the end. He's almost like an inflation hawk in that sense, especially when and right, and it goes to to many critics saying that you know he has been. Uh, I mean, uh, there's been a line of thought which says he's not any uh, different than the previous RBI governors because his you know many thought when rajan came to uh, came into office that he won't look much on inflation but that has not been the case he uh, as his previous predecessors has also focused which makes sense because these are the really key indicators of economic growth in india absolutely and i think uh, from a common man's perspective as well i think inflation is a fairly fairly important economic indicator i think price rises what pinches the common man the first and to that extent mr rajan certainly played his role in in pulling down inflation from the levels that it was right um so that kind of wraps up our discussion of the major topics that we had uh, we're going to do our normal round table now as we approach the end of this podcast so we are each going to go around and talk about one interesting story that we read related to india over the last week that caught our eye and uh, let's start with uh, milan thanks after uh, so i thought maybe i'll talk a little bit about brexit and its impact uh, on india so from brexit um, to brexit yep definitely and you know it's hard to avoid uh, brexit these days uh, in our social media feeds uh, it has uh, sort of taken over all our social media feeds and has received tremendous uh, air and column space um, from media as well. Uh, I mean, a momentous vote by the UK public to exit the European Union, right? Mm-hmm. And it's it's leaving its cozy trading confines for greater control over its trade and immigration policies. So that does, does deserve uh, our attention for sure. But what does it all mean for India? And I, I looked at a couple of articles and I thought this was you know, pretty interesting uh, and ironic that uh, the Brexit could actually turn out to be a good development for India. Uh, that may not be ca- the case for Britain, at least in the short term, uh, certainly not for the EU. Uh, but for India, it could turn out to be a um, good development. Uh, and, and here's why. There's three main um, uh, things uh, that uh, that made me um, arrive at that conclusion the the first one is and this is pretty obvious the relative weakening of the uh, pound the british pound with respect to the indian rupee that could uh, mean indian entities can pay off their uh, debt that's denominated in uh, pounds at a discount and it also makes travel uh, to the uk cheaper for indians it makes imports from um, britain cheaper so that's the obvious one. Uh, secondly, India could be an attractive alternative uh, foreign capital destination, uh, given the uncertainty in UK and Europe right now. So in that way, India could benefit from um, additional investment. And thirdly, India could car- carve out a pretty favorable deal with Britain uh, by itself. Now that Britain is uh, unencumbered from um, EU uh, laws and regulations, we could go off on our own and uh, negotiate a favorable long-term deal with the UK. Uh, that was always on the table before, but you know it, it's a pretty naughty problem to solve when uh, the UK is subject to EU um, laws and regulations. So those three, in my mind, are, are the uh, biggest uh, um, pros 
of the Brexit for India. There's obviously, you know, some downside as well. Indian companies that have their European operations headquartered in the UK, they're going to definitely suffer. They're going to have to um, execute a separate Europe strategy now. Um, and then uh, lastly, now, although this is unlikely, most experts uh, at this point believe it's unlikely, but a prolonged uncertainty in the global markets could definitely affect overall investment in India and slow down the country's economy as well. So that's my tra- take on, on Brexit and what it means uh, for India. Perfect. Um, Pavan, do you want to go next? Yeah, uh, before I go on, uh, looks like Vijay Malia brought some bad luck to Britain as well when he went there. <laughs> Uh, anyways, so the article that I was, uh, I would like to talk about today was published two days back in uh, Live Mint, and uh, it was about other countries looking at the Aadhaar system, which was quite interesting. As per the article, uh, Russia, Morocco, Tunisia, and Algeria have expressed interest in India's biometrics-based identification system, and uh, considering modeling and are considering modeling their own national identification systems on Aadhaar's model or some form of of it. The article spoke of how Morocco was uh, attempting to overhaul its national identification system known as the NPR or National Population Register and has already included biometrics as a key part of its uh, identification system. Uh, Morocco also wants to use the system for executing social welfare initiatives the way India has been doing the past few years. Morocco's initiatives are being facilitated by the World Bank, apparently. And the World Bank, in its 2016 development report, highlighted Aadhaar as the technology leading the economic revolution and said it was a system worthy of uh, replication. The Bank of Russia, I believe, has also expressed interest in the system to create a biometrics-based identification program with the ability to disburse subsidies for its population of 160 million. Uh, while while the other have, may have its detractors at home and been uh, it's been the subject of many accusations, the government has claimed that the system has been saving uh, some 15,000 crore rupees every year just from LPG subsidies. I personally have my reservations on whether Aadhaar is really a successful program, but uh, it was interesting to take note of uh, the international interest in it. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's uh, that's very interesting and, and um, good to see that all that work is, is is being recognized the world over. Right, I can go next. Um, so July marks 25 years since. The original set of economic reforms were launched in India in 1991. And um, one man who doesn't get credit or who's kind of been sidelined related to those economic reforms is former Prime Minister P.V. Narasimha Rao. There's a, there's a book that came out this week uh, related to him and his political journey. And I kind of want to make two or three quick points about, about this. I think the first is that Manmohan Singh, uh, the, who was then the finance minister, and being the gentleman and the decent man that he is, has repeatedly said in many interviews that had it not been for the political backing of Prime Minister Rao, there was no way he could have been able to present the kind of budget that he did in July 1991. Manmohan Singh himself was a technocrat. He was not in the Congress before July 1991. And, um, you know, he, he was drafted in by, by Mr. Rao just to give uh, the boost to the economy. I think the second point is people underappreciate the political risk that Rao took. This The Congress was a minority government that didn't even have 271 seats in parliament at that point of time. 
it was felt that the IMF was actually pushing uh, those reforms down India's throat. So a lot of people saw that as a sellout to a foreign power. Uh, and market reforms were not popular then. I mean, India had never done that before and nobody knew what the outcome of that would be. So it was almost like a leap of faith in the dark. Uh, but Rao actually took that decision and the political buck stopped with him. And it's his legacy that's now continuing all those years. And I think the third and the final point for me, which is the one that really saddens me, is that Rao's political legacy is completely lost. Now, he was a complicated personality. You know, there were good things in his tenure. There were also bad things that happened. Babri Masjid got demolished. There were communal riots. The Congress has completely disowned him and washed his, their hands off him. And I think this goes back to the culture of psychophancy in the Congress that anyone who's not a Gandhi, uh, is, is his achievements just don't belong in, in the books of history. And to me, you know, that just, it's distressing because it shows the larger cultural problems of the Congress party and it probably tells you why they are where they are today. But I think Rao deserves his place in history and hopefully, you know, with, with this historical analysis going on and books coming out about him, his, he, he would, his, his contribution, at least in, in you know, opening up India's economy would be recognized and would be placed where it should be. Right. I'm going to hand it over to Gaurang to wrap this up. Uh, Gaurang, over to you. Thanks, Aftab. So, um, finally, uh, this also needs to be mentioned. Anil Kumble was selected as the head coach of Indian cricket team. It had its fair share of controversies as, as well, but there were about 40 candidates uh, who were considered initially, and the list uh, was then narrowed down. And uh, it's <clears throat> striking to see that Ravi Shastri lost out on the, uh, on his continuation as the coach. Um, the selection committee uh, consisted of um, VVS Lakshman, Saurav Ganguly, and Tendulkar. And uh, <clears throat> apparently, Kum, uh, basically, uh, uh, when they shortlisted the candidates, they were supposed to, uh, the candidates were supposed to give a presentation on how they would lead the Indian cricket team and what their road ahead would be. And apparently, Kumle's presentation was really, really impressive. <clears throat> but despite having said that, there have been a lot of controversy about BCCI not ma making this uh, process uh, more transparent and more clear. Uh, and then there was a small spat between Ravi Shastri accusing Saurav of being unfair because uh, Saurav was not present during Shastri's presentation. But despite all that, the fact remains that Anil Kumble now is going to be the uh, head coach. And it's going to be interesting to see how uh, his relationship with Virat Kohli turns out and um, how that affects in the upcoming West Indies tour. Yeah, I think that's definitely one to watch out for. Um, there's There are two different kinds of personalities. And when you have when when you have that situation where you have an aggressive person in Virat Kohli and 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 someone like Kumble who is much more balanced and calm, uh, it can either you can either act as foils for each other or it can lead to a lot of friction. So we'll see which which way uh, this this story eventually goes. Right, we're at the end of this podcast. Thank you so much, guys, for all your inputs and analysis this week and and for pulling all of the data and the wonderful charts together. Um, Thank you to our listeners and to our readers. Uh, once again, our website is varta.in. That's V-A-R-T-A-A.in. Please go and sign up for a weekly news digest that we deliver to your mailboxes every Monday morning. You can also look at our chart of the week. You'll also find our podcasts, the previous editions of our podcasts on the website as well. Please do visit varta.in for regular updates and daily news updates from the best sources related to India. 
Thank you again. Thanks all of you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Bye.